I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, the real question I'm asking today is, are we right about the Trinity? And I really, I want to approach this from that perspective because we have a really big problem when it comes to the Trinity. As Christians, we have a serious problem. And I, I mean that. I'm not using hyperbole here. We have a serious problem. And the problem is um, that every cult out there attacks the Trinity and every every other religious group tends to target this issue. I mean, just look, here's a list of groups that come against the doctrine of the Trinity, attack the doctrine of the Trinity, and they're better at attacking it than most Christians are at defending it. And then this is where we get into our problem. Like, this is where the issues arise. Um, so uh, let me walk you through seven questions that a cult member or someone in a different religion, perhaps maybe not technically a Christian cult, but but they're a different, different religion, and they attack the Trinity with these questions. I want you to imagine yourself in the position of being asked these questions. Because you may say to yourself, Mike, I know the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but can you answer the following questions? So, and this is what it's like, right? This is what it's like when they come to your door and sometimes, uh, you know, knock on your door or you meet them, you know, or at a family gathering or at school or at work or something like that. And they decide, as you're witnessing to them, that they're going to attack the Trinity and you find that perhaps you weren't prepared for it. So, I'm going to right now imitate for you the uh, the person attacking the Trinity, asking you these seven questions to see how you can hold up under this. Then what I'll do is I'll explain the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I'll answer the same question, these same seven questions from a biblical perspective, trying to give good answers to tough questions uh, about Christianity. So I, I hope you can hear me okay. If you're uh, watching live, um, I, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, this is, uh, is going to be... Uh, a little while for me to teach through this topic, but I will take your questions Q&A at the end of the stream, even if it's a bit of a longer stream uh, today. So you can load your questions in there. My friend AJ is going to put those into a, a, a basically a document for me. He'll send them to me and I'll answer your questions at the end of the stream after I've gone through all the material. Uh, if it's your first time, I do recommend you consider, you know, subscribing and clicking that, uh, clicking that little button there. Uh, because um, it'll uh, it'll help out hopefully you and help me reach more people with the truth of Christ. So here's the questions. Imagine that a cult member or a Muslim or someone who's just not a Christian, they're part of some other group, and they challenge you on the doctrine of the Trinity with these questions. Question number one, they say to you, why isn't the word Trinity found in the Bible? Why isn't the word Trinity found in the Bible? And then And then you go, oh, I didn't I didn't know that this wasn't found in the Bible. I didn't realize that that was the problem, that that was the situation. Um, so, you know, you say to them, I didn't know. And they say, well, the reason is because it's not biblical. You know, and I thought you were a Christian and you believed the Bible only. But apparently not. Apparently you believe extra biblical things that are not in the text of scripture. I thought you believed the Bible. So question number two, they say, Jesus, how could he be God if Jesus said the Father was the only true God? And we get this. Allow me to take you there because... Um, I find it really useful to bring you guys right to the text of scripture. Um, in John 17, 3, Jesus, um, he said that the father was the only true God. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So if if uh, if God, the father, is the only true God, and that's who Jesus is talking to in John 17, then how can you say Jesus is God? He can't be God. Only the father is God. Then question number three, they, they they quickly move away. Before you can even answer, they, they jump over to another passage of scripture, John 14, 28, and they say to you, 
um, say your name is Jeff, for instance, and they say, hey, Jeff, obviously Jesus isn't God because he said, my father is greater than I, right? You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would, re would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. So obviously he can't be God because like God can't be greater than God. There's only one God. And so they jump then immediately to another issue and they say, who was Jesus praying to? I mean, can God pray to God when Jesus was praying? Who do you think Jesus was praying to? And now you're starting to really be bothered because this person seems to have Bible verses and they have logic to support their case. And number five, they hit you with another question. They say, how can Jesus be God if he's God's son? You can't be someone's son and be the same person. I'm not my dad. So like you can't be that person and have them be your father at the same time. So obviously God, the father is God. Jesus is not. And then the sixth question they say in Colossians, it actually tells us that Jesus was created. It tells us Jesus was created. Colossians 1.15. It says, and now I'm, I'm imitating them. Okay. These are not my beliefs. I mean, this is role play. Okay. In John, uh, in Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The implication is that Jesus himself is created. He's a created being. And, and so he can't be God because he's the firstborn of creation. He was just the first thing made. Now, this may not bother you, but many of you out there, you're like, this is really bugging you. In fact, the truth is, that uh, at least according to a recent poll by Ligonier Ministries, 78% of Americans say that Jesus is, quote, the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Okay, but now those who know the doctrine of the Trinity say that's not the Trinity, right? That's heresy, that Jesus was a created being. That's, that's demoting Christ from the exalted omnipotence and glorious eternality of, of being God to being just another created being. Uh, there's an infinite amount of difference between the Jesus who is uncreated and the one who is cre who is created that version. And then finally, they hit you with their last accusation and they just say to you, well, why is it if Jesus is God? Why didn't Jesus just say, hey, I'm God. And they bring out a Bible and they say, show me a verse. Here's a Bible. I got one right here. They go, show me a verse in here that says Jesus, where Jesus says, I'm God. You can't do it because you have an unbiblical pagan Roman doctrine that was invented by Constantine and was part of a Roman conspiracy to destroy the church and create pagan beliefs in the church. And then a bunch of conspiracy theories can all come out at that point, right? Um, and so this is the problem, right? This is, this is the big problem we've got is that Christians, you've got to be able to answer these questions. Why? Because we are an evangelical religion. We bring our faith into the lives of other people. We tell them about Jesus. And these are questions about who Jesus is. This is why we're on red alert back there in the background, because this is a huge issue. This is a, um, I can't compromise. I'll die on the hill of, of the identity of Christ. I will literally die on this topic. I will give my life before abandoning the truth of who Jesus is. Um, it's that big of a deal. Uh, we cannot agree to disagree. Now we can disagree and be kind and gracious. We don't have to, you know, <laughs> become angry about the topic, but, but we will stand our ground on the topic of the Trinity. So I'm going to help you do that. Hopefully today, um, I'm going to first establish and explain what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is. And then I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures to support it. Then I'm going to come back to those seven questions I just asked you, and I'm going to answer them from a biblical perspective. All right. So I hope that this will be fruitful. Those questions are just drawn from conversations with uh, with skeptics, with people who don't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. 
and I'm hoping that um, that both sides can hear this video and we can just start with this premise, perhaps. We can start with this premise. Um, whatever the Bible says about Jesus, we'll take that as being who Jesus is. We'll let God tell us who God is, right? And so the question is, does the Bible support what about Jesus and his identity? And so if you are perhaps you've, you know, I read those questions and that's you, you're the one who denies the Trinity. I just say, Hey, just hear me out. Just listen to what I'm saying. I'm going to show you the verses. I'm going to walk you through it. And then I'm going to answer those questions at the end. And if you already believe the Trinity, you need to learn this stuff so that you can uh, answer these questions for other people. So here we go. The first pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity is going to be the belief in monotheism. And this is Isaiah 43.10. I'll, I'll take you to a few verses for this. This is generally not a problem for people, right? When, I, when, when, when different groups are debating on the identity of Christ in particular, yeah, we talk about the Holy Spirit too, but, but specifically Jesus is where the debate usually lies. Um, they don't typically have to argue about monotheism. So I'll just give a few verses that support monotheism. Uh, Isaiah 43, 10, that is, uh, it says here, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that's Yahweh speaking, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So God is unique. God is the only one of his kind. And there's no none before him, and there will be no no one like him afterwards. This is monotheism. Mono meaning one, and theism meaning belief in God. So belief in one God. That's the foundational thing of the doctrine of the Trinity is monotheism. I'll give you another scripture also from Isaiah. Isaiah 44 verse 6. This is, a, now Isaiah in the 40s of Isaiah, the, the, when Isaiah was in his 40s. I just entered my 40s, by the way, so... Uh, well, uh, that, this is life. <laughs> when Isaiah was in his 40s, in the chapters of the 40s, he was getting into a lot of this stuff about monotheism. So it's a great place to look for uh, teaching on the topic. Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set, set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. So he's, he's speaking about his unique ability to prophesy. Remember this, that uh, one of the ways God validates who he is, is prophecy. This is important in scripture and in Christianity, but it's also important in the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus will say something similar later on. We'll get there. It's a really neat passage in John. Um, but so he says like, see, I'm telling you the future ahead of time. Then he says, the conclusion, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, if God doesn't know about any other gods, it seems like we're pretty, pretty much on safe ground, biblically speaking, to say there are no other gods. Like this is not really a debated topic for the most part. Obviously everything's debated. If you find, if you pull enough people, you'll find someone to debate you on it. But, um, but no, this is, this is foundational, simple, simple stuff. Um, final passage on this one, Isaiah 45, verse 21, uh, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Speaking of false gods who told us long ago, who declared it of old, speaking of prophecy, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Now get this, like this isn't a polytheistic environment, right? Where they think, oh, well, those people over there, they have their God that will help them. God declares to the world in Isaiah, this Jewish book, he declares to the world that all of their gods are false 
and that he will be the savior for all the people. The ends of the earth should turn to him because he will be there for them. So this is um, uh, beautiful. It's a beautiful, it's, it's, it's like evangelism uh, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. God saying, hey, I made you. Come to me. You need me. All right. So that's the first pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is what we've got to understand because a lot of times when people attack the Trinity, they they act like when we say Trinity, we don't mean monotheism, that we mean some kind of tritheism, some three gods, but that's not the case, right? That's not the Trinity. That's a heresy. That's something we absolutely reject. Um, if you have a view of God that compromises monotheism, something's seriously wrong, right? The Trinity does not do this though. The Trinity involves monotheism as its bedrock. So what is the Trinity? What's a good uh, definition of the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, it's the, the word itself is, is a, good, a good place to start, right? Trinity, it comes from two words, tri and then unity. Being Putting these two words together, tri meaning three, like tricycle, you know, unity being three in one. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. He's three in one. But already people are really confused about this. They talk about it sometimes rather poorly. And so uh, let me explain what we mean by three in one. What we don't mean is that God is three gods in one God. That is not the doctrine of the Trinity. There aren't three gods in one God. That's just a contradiction that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not what we mean. What we mean is this. There are three um, who's and there's one what. Three who's and one what. That is, the three who's are the persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the what, that's the tri of the Trinity. The what, the unity part, that's God. There's one God. There are three persons in the one God. That's the Trinity in a nutshell. Um, the, uh, the, the unity part, the God part that we're speaking of is that's God's being. That's his essence. That's who he is. That's, this is, this is like what God is, I should say. And then the, uh, the who's are the, the persons, Father, Son, Spirit. So Trinity, three in one, is not three gods in one God. No, it's three persons, one God. That's the idea. Let me read to you um, from a book I actually highly recommend. This is uh, The Forgotten Trinity by James White, um, who uh, might want to debate me on some other issues one of these days. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Um, uh, but anyway, fantastic book, The Forgotten Trinity. I have a link in the description that will, uh, it's an affiliate link. It'll take you to Amazon if you want to get that, if you like reading. Great uh, job on that book. Um, much better than I could have done for sure. Uh, but, but in the book on page 26, he says this about the Trinity. He defines it as... Within the one being, the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is like a standard Christian stuff. This is throughout the history of the church. This is what we've been thinking about, about who God is and who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is. That's the doctrine of the Trinity in a nutshell. Now, I'm going to give you scriptural support by going through each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we'll look at some scriptures to support that each of them is God, but there's only one God, right? There's Each of them is identified as God, but not a different gods, rather one God. So three persons, one God. So let's uh, let's start with uh, the Father being God. This is actually the easiest, right? Like even those who are in the comment, like right now in the live comments, which I'm not, I'm not able to read while I'm teaching. I'll look at that stuff later. But um, right now, you guys probably are debating who Jesus is. If you're debating in there, you're probably not debating who the father is. This is not debated. Um, first Peter, I'll give you an example. First Peter, um, one, two, this says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. So like, 
this is pretty clear, right? The Father is God. This is very, very clear in the New Testament as well as in the Old. It's, it's, it's actually more clear. The fatherhood of God and the, the, um, the, the sonship of, of Christ um, and the Holy Spirit, they're all more clear in the New Testament than in the Old, but they're still in the Old, um, just not as, as much clarity there. So the fatherhood of God, this is like not really debated. I don't really, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm sort of wasting our time for the sake of this video in digging into the fact that God is the father, the father is God. So what I will do though, is I will say this, Matthew 3.16 offers us some clarity. And that is that the father is not the son. And that's really important, right? Because we're saying the father is God, but we're not saying the father is the son. This is really important. This is there's the two, the two repeated facts, I'll go over them over and over again, right? The son is God, but he's not the father. The, the spirit is, is God, but he's not the son. The father is God, but he's not the spirit. That, that there's three persons in one being. So um, one scripture that, that supports this is Matthew 3.16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, here's what happens at his baptism. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, we don't think that God is doing some sort of like ventriloquism here, right? The father and the son are two different persons here. In fact, he talks about the son as though he's a different person. This, the father speaking, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a relational interaction that's going on between the father and the son. So the father's not the son. That would be a simple uh, thing there. Okay, most will agree on those things. The, the Father's God and the Father's not the Son. Most will agree on that. They will not, however, agree on this next topic, which is that Jesus is God. This, though, is so abundantly clear through the New Testament, um, especially, uh, as well as the Old, although that, that'll be another video one of these days, um, that the Son is God. This is not, well, let me share, let me make the case. Let me bring the scriptures to you Let's look at them in context. They're right on the screen for you. Colossians 2, 8 and 9, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I read verse 8 for this reason. It starts with a warning that somehow people would take you captive, not according to Christ, like they're leading you away from the truth of Christ. And then verse 9 tells you what the truth of Christ is. This is the thing you can't let people lead you away from, Right? This is, this is the thing about the truth of Christ. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, the fullness of deity, that's the being of God, the fullness of deity, that's in Christ bodily. He's human and he's divine, but not divine in some Greek, um, pagan, Romanistic type meaning, but rather in the Jewish sense where there's monotheism as the first grounding of the Trinity, right? That monotheistic God, that one God dwells in Christ uh, the, in the whole fullness of the deity is in him physically. That is so powerful. Um, now, this is where I want to say, let's clarify a, a common confusion. Sometimes people say that Jesus is, because we speak of his divinity and humanity, that Jesus is 100% um, human and 100% divine. So he's 100% human, 100% God. There's a problem with this reasoning, though. Um, then that makes Jesus 200%. So it's confusing. 
Um, we don't have scripture that uses percentages to describe who Jesus is. That's not right. And it would also be wrong if you said he's 50% human, 50% divine. That would also be wrong. This is not biblical terminology. This is, this is a bad idea, right? Rather, what we would say is what Christians have been saying for literally thousands of years is that Jesus, not as 100% God, 100% man, we would say he is truly God and truly man. That's, that's the doctrinal statement of Christians throughout the centuries. He is truly God, truly man. It's genuine when we say he is God, he really is. He's not just like godly, right? He's God. Then in Titus 2.13, we have another, um, I love this, uh, Titus 2.13, and you're going to love it too in a minute. <laughs> we have another passage. It says that we're waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, this, this is clearly, and I mean clearly and inarguably identifying Jesus as the great God, not even some like lesser God, not a secondary God for, for some who would try to pull that off. No, the great God. Jesus is the great God because he's our God and our savior. Now there's an actual rule in Greek that will help us out because some people have said, oh no, 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 this is talking about two people in Titus 2.13, our great God and our savior, Jesus Christ. Um, but there is... Okay, so I'm going to get a little Greeky on you here. Okay, just a little bit. But I put a link in the description that will give you the... Oh, it's a 20-minute video just on the thing I'm about to teach you right now, okay? This is called the Granville Sharps Rule. What the Granville Sharps Rule is, is it's a rule about the grammar of Greek and the construction of Greek words. When you put together certain words in certain ways, they're always interpreted in a certain fashion. What I mean is this, like language has rules. I'll take English, for example. English has rules. Um, I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y. That's what we say, except the problem with this rule is we break it all the time, right? I before E isn't really much of a rule. It's more of like a general guideline. It's, it's rare in language where you have rules that are just pure rules. They're 100% true 100% of the time. Every time you see this, it means this. Well, that's what the Granville Sharps rule is. It's a rule of Greek grammar this rule that's true in every scenario and every time. And we have it here in Titus 2.13. And it has to do with the, um, the, uh, the terms God and Savior, and then the name Jesus over here. So basically the way it works, I'll give it to you in the simple, like simplified version, is when you have uh, our great God and Savior, the Greek rule that's applied in Titus 2.13 means these two words are referring to the same person, Jesus. That's the rule in a nutshell. Now I'll read it to you a little bit more specific for those who are actually into Greek, um, which is probably like 1% of you. Um, here's the rule in a nutshell. It's when two substantives agree in gender, number, and case, and they're connected with chi, which is the Greek word and, and only the first has the definite article, the second does not have the definite article, they're referring to the same person. If these substantives are singular, personal, and not proper names, this rule is true 100% of the time. And it's not even a rare occurrence. It happens a lot in the New Testament in particular. But that's the that's the, the rule in a nutshell. Um, if you want to know more about it, that's all the Greek I'm going to give you. But if you want to know more about it, there's a link in the video description to a really simple, broken down explanation of the Granville Sharps rule and how it applies to the very passages I'm teaching you today. But it's by someone who actually knows Greek well and not me. Um, okay, so Titus 2.13, this verse inarguably identifying Jesus as God, the great God, inarguable. That's what it means in English, but it's also even stronger what it means in Greek.
Let me give you another verse. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, um, to those who have obtained equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the same construction again in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. It's the Granville Sharp rule that we apply here, clearly teaching that Jesus is God and Savior. Jesus, he's identified as Theos, God, in this very passage. Really, really neat and very clear. There's no, um, I could give you verse after verse after verse. I've just given you a few here uh, because what we're going to do is we're going to enter into this, some other areas of, of uh, difficulty. But this is, this is more than enough, I think, to establish that the New Testament teaches Jesus as God. Yet, remember that one question we got? Why doesn't Jesus ever just say, I'm God? Maybe the, the apostles hijacked Jesus' identity. Maybe Paul, uh, this is not what I believe, but some do, that the apostle Paul came and he changed Christianity. Except here we have Peter, who also says Jesus is God. Um, so that doesn't work. But let's go to the mouth of Jesus himself, and we'll look at a passage in John chapter 8, John eight fifty eight. He's uh, having a sort of banter back and forth with the Jewish people there in, in, that are around him. And he's talking to them about, um, about Abraham. And they're like, our father is Abraham and all this stuff. And Jesus is implying that he's greater than Abraham, which is to them kind of a big deal. And uh, like, they'll kill you for saying that sort of stuff. And in uh, verse 58 of John 8, it says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, those of you who pay attention to just English, right? You're going to be like, wait a minute, the, the grammar is wrong there. Like th that's not the right tense. That's present tense. I am. It should say I was before Abraham was, I was, that would mean Jesus was pre-existent before Abraham. But no, when he says before Abraham was, I am, that means something even more. Not only was he pre-existent before Abraham, but he was eternal. He was just simply existent. As in, God's existence is the grounding of all reality. And he's like, before Abraham was, I simply am. But it gets even better than that. Because Jesus, out of his own mouth, he is right here quoting God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, when he declares that he is the I am. This is a statement of deity. And it's understood clearly in the text, right? Jesus is saying, I'm the I am. He doesn't even say, I am he. Some translations add the, add the word he at the end here in John 8, 58. But that's added. That's not, that's not in the actual uh, text. Um, no, in fact, many of you know the Greek. The Greek here is ego eimi. Ego eimi, right? This, this Greek word, or two words, ego eimi, ego is, is, is speaking of ego, like the self, I. And then eimi is the verb for existence. He goes, I am. I exist. I simply am. This actually harkens back to Old Testament statements I'll give you one in particular, Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 43, 10. And know this, the Jews that hear Jesus in John 8, the Jews that are hearing him, they know Isaiah 43. They know that I am is a statement of who God is, and it's God's claim, and other people shouldn't make this claim. It's not that they can't use the word I, the phrase I am. No, they can't make it in the way Jesus did, because that's a claim to deity. So in Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I've chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Now again, um, it helps to know just a tiny bit about Greek here. So Jesus said, ego eimi, I am, right? 
Well, in the Greek translation of Isaiah 43, which is what the New Testament authors had access to, the Greek translation of Isaiah, we know because they quote from the Greek, this text says, I'll read it to you with Greek, right? That you may know and believe me and understand that ego, eimi, I am. Not I am he even, just I am. And this is a statement of existence. He's like, I am and those other gods, they don't exist. They are not. I am, they're not. God is the grounding of all reality, right? Jesus in John 8, 58, he's saying this. He's saying, I'm he. He's quoting himself from uh, the pre that pre-existent time or pre-incarnate time, not pre-existent, pre-incarnate time. Let me give you another scripture that relates to this. And it's in John 13, verse 19. Notice in Isaiah, what we just read, God's like, I'm going to tell you the future so that you'll know that I am, ego eimi. John 13, 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, predicting Judas's betrayal of Jesus. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that ego eimi, that I am. That's what he says there, right? That's the ego eimi phrase. So Jesus, he's, it's, it's clear he's quoting I mean, or re referencing, I should say, Isaiah 43, where God says, I'll tell you the future so you'll know, ego me. Jesus says, I'm telling you the future so you'll know, ego me. This was not lost on his Jewish audience. And if anybody thinks it was, well, um, we'll come back to that in just a second. So John 8, 24, that's the same passage in John 8, where Jesus is having the discussion where he's revealing who he is. And he says, um, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, this is the phrase ego eimi, the he is added. Ego eimi, I am. Unless you believe you will die in your sins. This is this is like a statement similar to Isaiah. Again, that same Isaiah passage where God was like, you must know and believe that I am. Jesus is saying this of himself. You must know and believe, you, you must believe that I am. This, this, like I said, was not lost on the Jewish audience. If we scroll down a bit and we go to John 8, 58, where Jesus says, I am, uh, I am ego eimi. The next thing they do is they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, don't get, don't get it wrong. This is not some like courtroom trial. This is a mob saying, let's kill him. And enough people are mad that some people actually grabbed stones and were like trying to kill him. Why? Because when you claim I am in this context, like Jesus did, the Jewish mind knows right away you're claiming deity. And to them, there's only two options. Either you are God come into the flesh. You are Yahweh among us, or you're a blasphemer and we're going to come after you. That you, when you, when you encounter words like this from Jesus, you can't say he's just a nice guy or he's just a prophet or he's just a, was a good person. This is either God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, or, or he's just a total blasphemer and he's, and he's, um, he's just insane. He's making claims that are, are utterly untrue. Um, Let's look at another passage here. So what we're saying here is I'm showing you passages where Jesus himself shows that he is God. This is not a later change. Um, Revelation 22 verse 12, um, Jesus speaking says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is a claim by Jesus to be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I don't have enough fingers for this. Um, but, enough hands, I should say. But he, he is these things. He's claiming to be these things. Remember that phrase, Alpha and Omega? That's actually Greek, right? So um, again, the, in the Greek, the first word is, the first letter in the Greek alphabet is Alpha, right? That's where we get our word alphabet. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. It's this 
letter alpha. The last word, the last letter is omega. So he's saying I'm the A and the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. It's They all go together, these three claims. Now, is that really a claim to be God though? Or is he saying he's the first creation? Well, if he's if, if being the beginning means he's the first creation, then being the end means he ends. Well, that's not the case. No, he's the beginning and the end because he's the grounding of reality. Because he is that which is before all things and that which is uh, exalted above all things. Um, but there's another way to prove this too, and that's in Revelation 1.8. Same book, so you can't argue against context here. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So clearly in Revelation, the idea Alpha and Omega is a reference to someone being God. And then Jesus claims it as well, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So this is a claim to deity. It's a claim to deity. Um, uh, let's see, there's, there's more, there's tons more. I'll, I'll give you some because they're beautiful and wonderful. And it's about seeing the, uh, the consistency of the, of the scriptures teaching about who Jesus is. That's what we need to see here. Uh, when Jesus, uh, would, was resurrected and he appeared to the disciples, uh, Thomas was not amongst them. Thomas is one of the disciples, but he wasn't there at, at one of the appearances and he was wanting to see Jesus. So Jesus appears again to the same group. Thomas is with them now. And he tells Thomas to like, you know, touch my, touch me, put your hand on my side, see that it is me. And Thomas responds, John 20, 28, by calling Jesus, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Um, now, Jesus commends this statement as being a statement of faith, like a good thing. You know, have you believed me because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Have believed what? Well, believe the thing Thomas just said, my Lord and my God. Jesus says that, you know, hey, Thomas, good job. Yeah, you got it. You got the point. And Thomas just called him God. Now, some people, they have fanciful interpretations of this. They, they imagine Thomas like looking at Jesus and saying, my Lord, and then looking up in heaven and going, and my God, <laughs> um, you're trying too hard. You know, like that's, it's, it's a five word sentence. Like it doesn't have changing of motions and all this other stuff. It seems pretty clear to me that this is, this is where uh, Jesus is being called God and he's accepting it and receiving it. Um, in fact, he also receives worship. I could do a whole study on just the places where Christ receives worship unto himself. Let's look at another passage. And this is um, John 1. This is this is probably my favorite passage dealing with the Trinity. One day I'll do a whole video on this because the Watchtower, um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the, their leaders have retranslated and changed John 1.1. I'll deal with that some other time. It's just too much information for today's video. But this is plain. Um, what I will tell you now is this. The, the New World Translation, their translation, changes this passage. But you could look up a hundred other translations that all put it the same way because it's just the JW's translation that's wrong in this case. It's They changed it because it's so obvious about who Jesus is. So what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three simple statements, right? Three simple statements. He's he he was with God. He was the Word, right? He just was existent. He was with God. That's relational, and the Word was God. That's his his identity of of being God, the God, the only God. There's only one God. Um, now, if you look down to verse fourteen, just in case you didn't know this, the Word is referring to Jesus, right? It says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this is definitely about this Jesus guy. 
this this Jesus person who comes, he is the word who became flesh. He was preexistent before he was in a body. He became flesh. And it refers to him as being the word, the logos, before he was in the flesh. So um, let's look at it again. And we'll look at the meaning of this. It's so profound. In the beginning was the word. This first clause of verse one, there's three clauses. The first clause is um, a statement of existence. He simply is. In the beginning harkens back to Genesis 1, right? This is like John's creation account relating, and, it's, and it goes right alongside Genesis 1. It speaks of God creating all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, here it says, in the beginning was the word. Verses 2 and 3 go on to talk about creation. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So everything's made through him. So the word existed before creation. All created things are made through him. Therefore, he is uncreated. That's the first clause of John 1, verse 1. The second clause is that the word is with God. The word's with God. This is, if we just take this simply, we don't need any special training for this, right? The word's with God. So this is a relational thing. The word is with God. Now, he's called a he. he, he he's obviously a person. We get this. And this person, the son, is in relationship with God. Here we would speak of the Father or the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we have, ultimately, we have this beautiful love relationship happening within the Trinity. In fact, this is kind of a beautiful thing um, to think about this. Christian uh, teaching is that God is love. It's a really unique Christian view. Now, a lot of people since then have liked the sound of that and they've tried to add it to their uh, their beliefs, but it came from Christianity, that God is love. Um but think about this, before the creation, before things were made, in the beginning, before anything was made, who was there for God to love? Like, who's God to love? Isn't he lonely? I've even heard people say God made made everything because he was just lonely and he wanted people to hang out with, people to spend time with. But no, the, the, the text of scripture tells us that God was never really alone because within himself, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that God can be love even before any of us exist. So in the beginning was the word. Yeah. And the word was with God relationship. So there's the personage, multiple persons in, in this. And then the third clause of John one is John one, one is, and the word was God. And this is, um, again, I'll, I'll do like a thing on the watchtower one of these days, but the statement is just this, like the word was God. Now, how can the word be with God and be God at the same time? Well, the Trinity, that's how, right? You've got uh, the person of the son the person of the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, and they're with each other, right? Yet there is one God. So the word's with God and the word is God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. The scripture forces us to believe the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not something we've come up with on our own. We've simply said, we've bowed our, our, our minds to the Bible, said, this is who you say you are, God. We believe it, we receive it. So the balance of who Christ is, it's forced upon us. Now, there's, there's a lot more I could get into about passages on the deity of Jesus. I could do that all day long. Uh, maybe I should do that. We should do like an eight-hour live stream on just every passage about the deity of Christ until <laughs> till I lose my voice and pass out. But what we'll do right now is we'll, um, we'll uh, clarify a couple issues. Okay, so Jesus is um, the second person of the Trinity. And that's the doctrine, right? Father, Son, Spirit. But he's, um, he's not the Father. And this is a very important distinction. He is not the father. In fact, I think at this point in time, I'll bring up this uh, diagram. Uh, which way do I go? Here we go. 
see this diagram this is like a typical trinitarian diagram this is something people found helpful don't think of it as an analogy for the trinity it's not really meant to be an analogy it's meant to be a conceptual diagram that just helps you think this through and sort of summarize a, a theological belief with with the connections so we have the persons of the trinity on the outside of the triangle father son and holy spirit we have the uh, the the being of the trinity remember three persons one being with the being of the trinity that was represented in the middle circle where it says god and then we have how they relate to one another so we have the the son he is god the word was with god the word was god right the son is god the father is god we've already seen scripture on that and i don't think anyone's going to argue with me the holy spirit is god i'll show you some scripture on that in a minute yet the son is not the father the father is not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not the son so then this is that in a nutshell there's the doctrine of the trinity i find these diagrams to be useful i think it's helpful to to see a visual that just helps us kind of connect that um so uh yeah i think that that's something important to clarify with the doctrine of the trinity this doctrine arises naturally from the text of scripture we're just trying to explain what we read right the son he doesn't do the same things the father does the son comes in human form the son dies for our sins and rises to life again there's different roles but they're co-equally god different roles role relates to the personhood of the son the father and the spirit they have different roles the spirit in, indwells me right the um the the father um uh he sends the son the son dies on the cross these are different roles but there is one being of god so there aren't two yahweh's and three yahweh's and five yahweh's or something like that it's just the one god um so when i think about this away from it just being a theological fact it starts to blow my mind away jesus is god in the flesh that means when Jesus was loving us, God was loving us. I mean, this means when Jesus was going with, with my punishment to the cross for my sin, God was suffering for my sins. God, knowing me before I was even born, still coming and suffering to die for my sins, that when Jesus was speaking, God was declaring things to us. That Jesus, when we saw his character and his kindness and his attributes and the things he got mad about, we're seeing what God loves and hates. We're seeing God when we see Jesus. This just blows my mind. And this should excite you at this point. Realize we're not talking, theology is not talking about um, dead theories of irrelevant material. If that's how you view it, then you've just, you're wrong. You know, the theology is about the living God and learning who he is. And um, I think it's amazing. Um, I'll, I'll mention real quick before we move on to the Holy Spirit, I'll mention real quick, um, John 17 verse five, keep this verse in mind. Um, and now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What do I bring this verse up? Because some people believe in something called modalism. Modalism is the idea that the father, he was God's like the father in the old Testament. And then in the new Testament, he sort of becomes the son. And then later on, God comes as the Holy Spirit, but really the Father is the Son. The Son is the Holy Spirit. They're this, they're all identical, and it's just God sort of wearing different hats. You know, like I, I come home and I'm a husband. I go to work and I'm I'm a boss, and I go um, to the gym and I'm a, a, a 
gym member. I'm a member, you know? And so I'm wearing different hats, but nothing. I'm exactly the same person the whole time. That's actually not what the text says. And John 17, 5 kind of rules it out, right? Because glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. I had with you. There were two persons going on, right? Before the incarnation, there were two persons, but the Father and the Son together with the same glory because they're both God. Um, so I think that there's, it ruins modalism. He doesn't say it's the glory I had as you, but with you. So that, that's the personhood statement. Okay, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. I'll give you some scriptures for that. And then I'm going to answer the seven questions that I, um, that I posed in the beginning of the stream. So the Holy Spirit is God. Um, well, in the book of Acts, we read about Ananias and Sapphira. They were early church um, members of the church in the book of Acts. And they were the first kind of hypocrites in the church. And God makes an example out of them. But they lied. Here's what they did. They lied about money. They donated money, pretended they gave more than they did. And so God calls them out for it. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who did they lie to? The Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remains, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Meaning they could have done what they wanted with it. Um, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So verse 3 says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says they lied to God. Now you might say, oh, well, you know, it's just saying that behind their lie, it was ultimately a lie to God. But that's how he starts. They lied to Peter. But he's like, no, what you've really done is you've lied to the Holy Spirit, which is to lie to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. This is, this is the nature of who the Holy Spirit is. The real debate on the Spirit is, is he um, personal? That's where the real debate is. I'll give you a few scriptures on that. Um, is he really a, does he have his own personhood, so to speak? Um, in Acts 13, 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, catch these terms, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So this is, this is a statement where the Holy Spirit is actually speaking in the like like he's a person i mean if if you didn't if you weren't worried about upsetting anybody you just read it and be like well yeah he's a person the holy spirit speaks says do this for me because i said i want you to do it and i've called them to this thing the holy spirit is a person in this passage another passage for you is acts 10 19 um, and while peter was pondering the vision the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for i have sent them Right, the the Holy Spirit speaks as though he's God and as though he has a personhood. There's like a sense of personhood in the Spirit. There's actually a lot more scripture that I could share, um, for the sake of time, because I don't want my streams to be too crazy long. Um, I'll just give you a few things, uh, and then one day I do plan on. Oh, I should just announce it. Um, I you know what? I always kill myself by announcing these things because then life gets crazy and I can't do it as quick as I want. But my plan, my hope. I'm not promising, but my hope is to do a series on the Trinity this year where I unpack a bunch of issues really in detail about the Trinity. Um, one of the issues will be the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and I'll encounter and, and, and get a, go against like Jehovah's Witness teaching that he's an active force, and I'll, I'll deal with all that. For right now, I'll just give you a quick summary of a few things. Um, when you look up texts related to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, you notice a few things. The Holy Spirit guides people. 
the Holy Spirit testifies, he speaks, he discloses, he glorifies Christ. These are not actions that electricity does, right? These aren't actions that like the force can do, right? The, 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 the power of God, right? Doesn't do those things. Um, also, there's more. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. According to Matthew 3.29, the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Um, oops, I put down the wrong scripture reference. It might be Mark 3.29. I wonder. Or 13.29. No, there it is. Uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never uh, never has forgiveness or guilty of an eternal sin. Notice this though. Th- this is where Jesus is like, you blaspheme in the context. He goes, you blaspheme against me, the son of man, I'll forgive you. You blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're not going to have forgiveness. Um, this is equating the Holy Spirit to be a person in as much of a sense as Jesus is a person. Okay, so we have the Holy Spirit in his personhood. Another verse I'll give you, Ephesians 4.30. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, or anyway, it goes on to list all these things you don't want to do. Uh, but the result of the things, if you do them, is that they grieve or bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't, you can't bring sorrow to non-persons, right? I, can't, I mean, I can call my computer names. It doesn't feel bad. You can, I can make fun of electricity all day long and it will never be bothered by me doing this, right? That an active force doesn't have bad feelings about things. You, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's because the Holy Spirit has personhood. He's the third person of the Trinity. Um, in Hebrews 10, 29, we read that the Spirit can be insulted. They can insult the Spirit of grace. Well, I, I can't insult, uh, I can't have the result of insulting or a sense of insultment. Is that a word? Insultment? <laughs> yes, it's a I'm declaring it a word. And if I'm wrong, then uh, nobody tell me. Um, and if you have insulted the Holy Spirit. So that that's, obviously, these are all senses of personhood. So one being, God, almighty, eternal, right? Omniscient, omnipresent, all these beautiful things. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This arises from the scriptures. Let me give you one more scripture related to their relationship, um, and it is in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. This is this is so neat. Look at the way it's written. What is Jesus assuming in this text? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. He says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Now, this word, name, in in uh, oh, hold on, there it is. There you go. <laughs> this word name is is uh, in the singular to say that Jesus is asking us to baptize people in one name and the singular name we're to baptize people in is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because while they are three, they are one. While there are three persons, there is one being that is God. The tri-unity, the Trinity, it comes from the scriptures. Some people see the Trinity as a problem. I see the Trinity as the solution to all of the scriptures that it teach us who God is. See, I just believe the whole Bible. I believe that when it says that Jesus is God, then Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit's God, then, G- then the Holy Spirit's God. The Father's God, well, then the Father's God. Yet it says there's only one God. Well, I believe that too. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And so um, let me now, uh, oh, oh, watch out for this too. This is why when you bring up these scriptures, and I'll bet it has happened, if, if I have some you know people who are opposed to my views in the comments, I'll bet it's happened. Um, as soon as you bring up a scripture supporting the deity of Christ, 
they just jump to a different verse. They don't deal thoughtfully and carefully with the verse you've brought up. They always run away to another verse because I'm going to use a verse that says Jesus is the son of God. That's great, but I believe he's the son of God, right? I just believe that he's also God because there's a difference between person and being. And so um, uh, note in your mind when you're dealing with people who disagree with you on this topic, when they jump away from the verse you're showing them and just say, can we come to that verse later? Can we first just talk about the one I just brought you in Colossians, the verse I just shared with you in John 1? Can we just stick to that for a moment and then come to your other verse after we've discussed it? Because um, they'll never come to the conclusions of what the scripture teaches when they're running away from passages. Um, all right, seven questions. Here they are. I'm going to answer these seven questions now that we've unpacked the doctrine of the Trinity. And I want you to try to preempt me in your own head. Think, how would I answer these questions now that we've had this sort of lesson on the Trinity? And then I'm going to go to your questions. So you can put them in the comments section. AJ will send them to me and I'll answer them now uh, after I'm done with these seven questions. So here we go. Lightning, lightning round, seven questions. Why isn't the word Trinity found in the Bible? First question, why isn't it found in the Bible? Well, um, uh, the, the statement I would make to someone who asks this, and it won't work, but here's what I would say. I say the, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the concept Trinity, the concept of the Trinity is taught in the scriptures very much. And therefore the word comes from the concept. We learn the concept and we just kind of, we find a word that helps describe the concept to summarize it. Now that's not going to satisfy them, but then I would like to ask them a question. And I say, do you believe God is omniscient? Now, since I'm talking about people who believe the Bible here, that's the, that's the premise of this whole stream. Um, do you believe God is omniscient? And they're going to say, yes, God's omniscient, which means he knows everything. God knows all things. So they say, yes, God's omniscient. And I ask, where is the word omniscient in the Bible? And they say, oh, I didn't realize it wasn't in there. Well, I said, do you believe God is omnipresent? And they go, yes, yes. You know, where I go up to heaven, you're there. To bed in the depths of the deep, you're there. Um, God's omnipresent. I believe that. Yes, but the word omnipresent isn't in the Bible. Why do you believe things that aren't in the Bible? To which now they will be the one telling you, well, the teaching of omnipresence and omniscience, it's in the Bible. We just have a word to describe the teaching. And I tell them, bingo, same with the Trinity. So why isn't the word Trinity found in the Bible? Because it's a theological term used to summarize the concept the Bible teaches. Question number two, Jesus said the Father was the only true God. That's in John 17, 3. We can go to the passage. John 17, 3, look at those again. Um, that God is the only true God. Now, this is, this is really, okay, we don't believe in tritheism. We don't think that the Father is one God. Jesus is a different God. The, the Spirit is a different God. No, we believe, yes, the Father is the only true God. And so is Jesus. And so is the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. There's only one God. There's only one God. So recall John 1, 1, right? We're in the same book, John 17, 3, where Jesus says that, um, that the Father is the only true God. Yet John 1, 1 tells us that the word was God. He's with God and he's also God. That's the full teaching of scripture. John 8, 58, where Jesus says, I am, that before Abraham was, I am. How about question number three? Um, you might say, well, obviously, Jesus isn't God because he said, my father is greater than I. Well, that's in John 14, 28. My father is greater than I. And let's take a minute to unpack this one. Okay, because this is, this is a verse that always gets brought up in this debate. Um, 
Uh, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd rejoice because I said, I'm going to my father for my father's greater than I. The, the context is Jesus is in his earthly body and he's like, I'm going to the father. It's a good thing for me. The father is greater than I in some sense. The question is in what sense? Um, first off, I'll say it's person specific. What he doesn't say is God is greater than me. No, he says the father is greater than I. So it's about the persons of the Trinity, not the being of the Trinity. Persons and being, two different concepts. Um, second, I'll say this. Jesus, also in John, John 17, 5, sound familiar? Um, we were just in John 17. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was Jesus looking forward to? Why was he going to the Father? Why was this a good thing? Because Jesus had laid aside his glory when he became a human, right? When he took on flesh. He's still God, right? The word came and dwelt among us, right? He has the fullness of the Godhead or fullness of the deity bodily. So he's still God, but he's bodily. He's in the body and he is humbled and he is lowly. So he's looking forward to the glorification that comes when he returns to the father. So this is a temporary situation where the, the father's greater than me in this sense is, I think, a temporary thing. Another scripture that supports this and that I would say you could take someone to is Philippians 2. Speaking of Jesus, it says that, who though he was in the form of God, he was in the form of God, could it be more clear, did not e did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he, he, he was equal with God, but he didn't hold on to that, right? Not with the Father. Verse 7, it says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus comes and he humbles himself and he empties himself of, of glory, of some something is, is happening to him. He's being demoted right? He's still, his being is still there. He's still the fullness of the deity in, in the bodily form, but he's demoted, right? He comes as a servant. He comes as a human. Verse eight, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself being by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the most embarrassing and hateful way to die uh, in the ancient world. And so what we have is this, this humbleness, this coming down of Christ. And so he says, oh, you'd be happy for me. I'm going to the father. Cause what happens when he goes to, to, to the father? Well, verse nine, it says, um, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So the exaltation of Christ comes that I think is what John 14, 28 is referring to. You'd rejoice. I'm going to the father. He's greater than me. Uh, not in being in the sense, but in uh, this current state of personhood. Maybe I could put it that way. That might be clumsy, but that's my understanding of the passage. Um, okay, number four. Question number four. Was God praying to God? Was God praying to God? When Jesus prayed, was it God praying to God? Um, I, think, I think the answer there is that is tritheism. We don't think there's two different gods praying, right? That would be tritheism. We also don't think of modalism where, where like God's sort of miming to himself. But if you have three persons and you have one being, then in that sense, Jesus, the son can pray to the father, which is how he addressed his prayers. Father, typically speaking, he said, father. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, the son is the person, the God is the being in, in the terminology we're using. And how do I, how do I answer the question? How does, how does, uh, God pray to God, so to speak? Well, that's because of the Trinity. Cause there's this relationship, love, remember relationship in the persons of the Trinity. It's only possible because God is triune. 
the Trinity can answer the questions that the other views of God cannot answer. Um, number five, fifth question. How can Jesus be God if he is God's son? Um, hopefully you already know the answer to this one, guys, right? He is his son in the sense of person, but in the sense of being, he is God. So how can Jesus be God if he's God's son? Because of the Trinity. Trinity is the answer to the question. That's how, because of the doctrine of the, tri the triunity of God. Question number six, but Colossians, Colossians says that Jesus is the first creation of God, right? We'll go back to this passage. Oh man, people just, they abuse Colossians. Poor Colossians. If Colossians was a person, I'd feel very bad for it. Okay, there we go. I'm unable to like type it in for some reason. All right. Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First off, it doesn't say he's created. <laughs> like That's not what the text says. It says first, before it even says anything, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Like if you want to see God, you look at Jesus, right? He's the image of the invisible God because he took on human form. So he's God in human form. Um, he's the first born of all creation. What does that mean? Well, it, it's referring to the fact that Jesus is in charge of all creation. Um, why do I say that? Because firstborn doesn't mean first one born. That's not what firstborn always means, especially when you're talking about preeminence, when you're talking about a person's rank. Firstborn is a, in a sense of rank is not always about genes and about when you're born. Besides, Jesus wasn't the first person born. Um, so what is this speaking of? In fact, it says creation, firstborn of creation, not firstborn of beings or something like that. It's not about birth here. No. Um, so Psalm 89.27 uses the, the same word, prototokos, firstborn, uh, in the Septuagint in the Greek. Psalm 89.27, it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is speaking um, about the Davidic son and that he won't be the firstborn by nature of birth, but by nature of being made the firstborn. And firstborn will be what? In relationship to the other kings. So he'll be the highest of the kings. Firstborn here just means king of kings. It doesn't have anything to do with creation. It means king of kings. Again, the term firstborn is used in Exodus 4.22, where God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, was Israel the first nation around or first nation created or something? No, it doesn't speak about that. It's talking about God selecting them to be special amongst all the nations. So Jesus, firstborn over all creation or of all creation, is speaking of him being in charge of all creation. That's that's the concept, guys. That's the concept. It doesn't mean first one born, um, which doesn't work for several reasons. It means he is the uncreated one who is in charge of all creation. And that's the context. And that's all you got to do with Colossians is keep reading. So often with uh, false religious groups, they just quote one verse out of context. Well, let's look at Colossians 1.15 and we'll keep reading. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over, of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Could it be more clear that Jesus is uncreated? This is another passage that the Watchtower actually changes. They add the word other in there for no good reason um, several times to try to make it look like Jesus is the first of all other things. All other things were created through him. But that's not what the text says. Um, so, so yes, firstborn, that's, uh, that doesn't help anybody out except, well, Trinitarians. Um, seventh question, last question, then I go to your questions. It is, why didn't Jesus say, I am God? Why didn't Jesus just come out and say, hey guys, I'm God? 
And the answer is, you're saying it right now. He did. That's exactly what he did. He did it in John. He did it in Revelation. He did it in multiple places in the text of scripture, which is why they respond by trying to kill him for it, where he basically quotes scriptures and, and says the words of God in claims of his own identity. Um, it's pretty clear. Um, John 5 and John 8, and I mean, just read on and on. So he did, but he was careful to distinguish his personhood from the Father because he didn't want to confuse us about the Trinity. So bottom line, we just believe the whole Bible. Um, we just believe the whole Bible as, as Trinitarians. That's what we believe. I, I think that the case for the Trinity is really good. And I think my friend Graham agrees. What, Graham, what do you think? Wow. Wow. That's right. That's right. Graham agrees. I want to take this moment to clear it up. I said Grant in my last video and I, I it's Graham. I apologize. Sorry for that. I got a name wrong and that's it's kind of rude. So uh, that would be Graham. Um, the final challenge people might have, and AJ, you can send me some questions. Um, drop my phone. Here it is. The final challenge people might have on the Trinity is this. I just don't get it, Mike. I believe, you know, I, okay, you show me the Bible teaches it, but I don't understand it very well. I just, it just doesn't click for me. And to that, I will say this. Um, your job is not to fully understand and comprehend all things. Your job is to trust what God has revealed. My challenge to you is if the scripture says, if God says, this is what I'm like, and you say, yeah, I hear you saying that, God, but I just don't, eh, I just don't follow, then that is a dangerous arrogance on your part. When God speaks to us and tells us who he is, um, there should be no debate. Now, if you have a debate about whether or not you should even trust the Bible, well, you can go you know, look at my evidence for the Bible series or something like that. That's not what I'm doing in this video. This, this video is about, um, from a biblical perspective, can we support the doctrine of the Trinity? And it's very clearly taught. Trusting God means saying, Lord, when you tell me this is who you are, I believe you because I have faith. Because I believe you. I trust you. So let's go to some Q&A. Um, thanks, guys, for joining me, by the way. Uh, I can kind of glance at the live chat a little bit now. Um, and it's really good to have you here. Uh, we've got like over 400 people um, digging into the evidence for for the deity of Christ and the the, the Trinity. And it's very exciting stuff. Um, okay, so from uh, from Sarah B. I'll put it this way. I forget. Sarah Zimmerman. That's right. That's her last name now. I remember. Um, she says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Is it biblical to pray to all three persons of the Trinity? Some people say we're only supposed to pray to the Father, but oftentimes I pray to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I want to say, I think there's a passage where we have Jesus being appealed to directly. Um, and I just can't, I'm so sorry. I can't remember what, where it is right off the top of my head. And a quick word search on the word Jesus would not probably help me. <laughs> so, um, I will say this though. There, there's one God. You you can't, if you, if you were to pray Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, you can't not pray to God, right? That there's one God. Um, but the scripture does teach about how we pray to the father and that we pray in the name or th of the son or through the son. He says, you will, you will, you will ask the father in my name, Jesus said. So we pray through the son. That's kind of the, the, the differences in the person there. And then we pray in the spirit. So I have the spirit, the Holy spirit in me. I'm praying in the son, through the son and playing, praying to the father. Cause Jesus gives me access to God through his sacrifice. He, he cleanses me so that the Holy spirit might fill me. And then I might then come to the Father with my prayers. So that's like the the term economic trinity or, or how we see the different persons of the trinity uh, doing different things in the scriptures. Um, that would be the simple answer there. But I do not think that God's confused. 
if you were to say Jesus or um, Holy Spirit, I don't think that's a problem. But I do think the standard example we have from Scripture is to pray to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Um, question two from Pine Creek. Hey, Doug, good to hear from you. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own authority. However, don't most Christians say that Jesus could forgive sins, showing that he has the authority as as God? Um, the uh, the statement, I can do nothing on my own authority. Well, let's, let's go look at it. Oops, what was that? Oh, that was the second monitor. A bunch of people are going back to pause. What did he show us? That was just, that was the live stream. <laughs> um, so that's John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, this is this is not the own, on my own authority passage. There is another passage where he doesn't do stuff on his own authority, but that's not this one. Um, and I don't know it off the top of my head. But uh, at any rate, this is just saying that Jesus is not doing anything alone. The Father is, is doing these things with him. But he also says, not on his own authority. There we're speaking of how Christ comes humbly in service, and he only does the things the Father shows him to do, uh, that sort of thing. So this is... Um, uh, this isn't the idea of, of the submission of the son to the father in his coming to the earth in that humble time, which I spoke about from John 17 and Philippians 2. Um, and then your question related to that is this. Um, don't most Christians say that Jesus could forgive sin, showing that he has the authority as God? Um, well, when, when I recount the passage of Jesus forgiving sins, it went down like this. They say to Jesus, or Jesus says, um, you know, the, the paralytic comes down through the roof and they say to Jesus, uh, or Jesus says to him, oh, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. He sees their faith, tells the guy he's forgiven. And they say, Jesus, you know, no one can forgive sins except God. And then Jesus responds and says, to show you that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up and walk. And he tells the guy to stand up and walk, proving that, the, that Jesus has what authority to forgive sins. That doesn't directly prove that Jesus is God, that proves he has authority to forgive sins. So it's proving that he has the authority to do the things that he's saying he's doing. Um, so in other words, I would not use that passage as a strong um, evidence for the deity of Christ, but of the authority of Christ, um, I would go to other passages for the deity of Christ. There's the long answer to your question there. So good 147 morning says, how do I handle thinking about the Trinity separately or collectively? I have a hard time knowing if I should address Jesus when I ask for forgiveness or if I should address the Trinity. Well, because there's only one being, you're really speaking, you know, to God, you know. So I, like I said, I think if you're looking for a standard example in scripture, we pray to the Father um, uh, in the name of the Son and we pray in the spirit. That's the standard, you know, example we have from our, our scripture in the New Testament in particular. Jesus says, you know, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, that that's that's the basic idea. So if you're looking for some direction, I think that's a good way to go. And um, you can't go wrong with that. Um, as far as trying to think about the Trinity, just know there's only one God. Um, and there are three persons. I think beyond that, you may or may not fully comprehend and understand it all. But I wouldn't worry too much about that because you're just trusting what God has revealed. Um, okay, John Marcos has a question. Would it be partialism by Jesus um, doesn't know the day of, a, of apocalypse? I have a feeling, John, that English might be your second language. So I'm just, let me read it again. Would it be partialism by Jesus doesn't know the day of apocalypse? Or do you think he knew once he ascended? Or, or you typed it in and spell check, like changed. That happens to me constantly. <laughs> Change what you're writing. 
Okay, so um, when Jesus was was um, uh, talking about the day and the hour of his coming, he says, no one knows, not even the Son, only the Father knows. Um, so the implication, right, Jesus doesn't know the time of his coming. There were things Jesus didn't know while he was on the earth, at least in some sense, right? At least in his, in his human sense. And maybe he was restricting himself to that human awareness and only accessing divine knowledge when the Father approved of it. Maybe that was the scenario. Um, that, that's what I tend to think. Um, the question, though, that you're asking is, now after he ascended, does he then does he then know the time, the day, and the hour of his coming? Um, well, um, I, I'm inclined to think that he does, but I don't know of clear scripture on that. The best I can give you is this. While when the topic came up and Jesus before, I should say before his resurrection, he says he doesn't know the day or the hour, but... Um, but then the issue of when he's coming comes up again in Acts 1, 6. And now they, they act like Jesus knows. They ask him. So when they, they come together, Jesus in his glorified body, um, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses and they'll, they'll go out and share the faith. Um, what's interesting is he doesn't, again, say, I don't know. He just says, it's not for you to know. That's not a really robust case that Jesus knows now, but it's something and it's, it's what I got for you. <laughs> so now I'm sure there's more that can be said on that. That's what I got off the top of my head. Um, another question from Doug, uh, Pine Creek says, if hypothetically the Trinity was a false doctrine, how could Yahweh have communicated that in the old Testament? Wouldn't he say Isaiah 44, six, Isaiah 46, nine, Hosea 13, four, numbers 23, 19. Um, Okay, so the implication of your question right now, Doug, is that the Old Testament does tell us not to believe the Trinity and that these are examples of, of God doing that. That's the implication um, that I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm understanding your implication, right? I really, I'm trying to here, but thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is beside, uh, besides me, there is no God. That would definitely refute the tritheism view that there's more than one God. But Trinity is enti entirely monotheistic. So this is not, um, that doesn't affect the Trinity. Let's look at the next one. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I would say that that God right there, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons, there's one God, and there's no one like him. Um, so that doesn't, again, that, that would refute tritheism, but it would not refute, or polytheism, but it wouldn't refute um, the Trinity. Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You, you, uh, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides me there is no Savior. Um, where was the... Um, uh, I'm going to show you another script. Oh, hold on. I'll go to your other one, then I'll come back to that. Bes no, keep that in mind. Besides me, there is no Savior. 2319. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do or he has spoken and will he not fulfill it? Oh, oh okay. It's the not a man part. Okay, I get what this verse is about. God is not a man that he should lie. Well, he wasn't a man. The, the, the word became flesh. This happened a long time after that. And so God is not a man. Um, but also he is not in his nature, in his being, he is not like people in that he would lie, that he would go back on his word, um, that sort of thing. So, so I don't think that those relate to the doctrine of the Trinity um, in any 
in the way that I can see. Um, but there's another scripture. Remember he said, I'm the only savior. Just another, since you brought it up. One of the verses we went over earlier called Jesus, our God and savior specifically. Um, and it was uh, Titus 2.13. And was it also, yeah, first, second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. So let's go to the second Peter 1 because, um, okay, it says, um, by the righteousness of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one God's the only Savior. Well, he, Jesus is God and Savior. He, that's who he is. But then when you go down to verse, I think it's verse 11. Then the same terminology is used for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, same verbiage, too. So clearly the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the same as the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, if he's Lord in verse 11, then he's God in, in the, uh, the first verse as well. So just a little bonus one for you. Um, from mainly Carrie, I have a question. It says, how do we explain the Trinity to Mormons? They believe Jesus is Satan's brother. I think um, you explain it in the way I did, hopefully in the early part of the video, where you, you tell them, hey, um, you know, God is, we believe in monotheism. There's only one God, but also we believe there are three persons and that's what scripture teaches. Mormons believe in multiple, lots, actually they have more gods than any other religion because there's no, no number to the gods, no limit to the number of gods in Mormonism. And they don't often like to talk about it, but if I was Mormon, I'd be bold about what I believe. I'd just be like, yeah, we believe in countless numbers of gods. We just only, you know, have allegiance to certain ones. Um, so they believe God is like a 10 foot tall or 14 foot tall old man and the father and then Jesus, he has a body. The Holy Spirit has no body, has a spirit body, but doesn't have a physical body, um, which is confusing because in Mormonism, you can't become a God unless you get a physical body, but somehow the Holy Spirit breaks that rule and becomes like a, like a, a God who's maybe slightly lesser. I don't know. Um, so I would, I would say one step at a time, break down the two truths, right? One God, three persons, one God, three persons. When they, when they try to make it sound like you believe in uh, modalism, don't fall into that trap. When they try to bring you into tritheism, don't fall into that trap. Um, yeah. So, uh, Chris Buckland asked me a question, uh, first Corinthians two verses 10 and 11. Um, here, I'll bring that up so you guys can actually look at it while I'm reading the question. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Um, we'll, we'll just read it first. Uh, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, so that's the... Um, uh, that's the... Just a second. Sometimes my app uh, resets where I'm at. Okay. technical difficulties. Okay, here's the question from Paul, or from Chris, about Paul. Uh, Paul compares the Spirit of God to our spirits within us, but in God's case, we say that God and the Spirit are two different persons. In our case, however, we, would, uh, we wouldn't say that our Spirit is a different person from us. It is simply us. Why the distinction? Well, this is, this is why I say we believe in something called Toda Scriptura, or all of the Scripture, right? If the only verse I had teaching me who the Holy Spirit was was 1 Corinthians 2.10, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough to tell me enough things about God, right? Um, about the Spirit in particular. But there's a lot of things I have about the Holy Spirit. So I would answer, in a sense, I could say, Chris, you know, 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 11 is consistent with the Holy Spirit being a person. It doesn't teach against that. It's consistent. He knows things. And so, you know, he there's knowledge is like oftentimes a personhood quality. 
And, um, and yet with all the other scriptures that teach about the Holy Spirit, we have a strong case for his personhood. Um, uh, other than that, I would say, I'll, uh, I'll, I will do a whole video on the personhood of the Holy Spirit to answer these and other questions in the future. It's just that it's too big of a can of worms. Dustin Busa. Hey, Dustin says, um, Mike, have you heard of Stephen Bankars? Yeah, I know Stephen. Um, will you ever do anything with him? Some of your Trinity lingo reminds me of what he says as well. Oh, cool. I've heard of Stephen. We've like actually dialogued a little bit back and forth. He has the YouTube channel Reasons for Jesus. And I'll plug him real quick. I do recommend you go check out his, his channel. Stephen's content, um, obviously, we don't all agree with everybody on everything. And no one's like perfectly perfect in all their theology. I'm sure I'm not. I'm sure I'm going to learn and grow, especially when I see the Lord and go, oops, on things. <laughs> but my goal is to try not to do that. But I want to be humble about it and recognize, you know, where I fail. Um, but Stephen Bankars, he's a former New Age guy that was all into, actually was was well-known and would write on the New Age and mysticism and all kinds of weird stuff. He then came to Christ he has a neat testimony about that. And now he's a great source for people who want to either come out of New Age or influence people who are part of that movement. So I may do something with him in the future. We've actually talked a little bit about it. Um, so we'll see. Uh, Josh Hargan says, uh, Mike, thank you uh, for addressing this issue. Has the oneness movement impacted Christians in regards to them sharing the gospel? I remember hearing about Phillips, Craig, and Dean teaching oneness. I, I can't speak to Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Um, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know how the oneness movement would impact us sharing the gospel. I think that, um, I mean, the gospel is our mandate and we share it. I, I'm so, I'm sorry, Josh, I, but I think that you're trying to get me to answer something here and I'm not quite picking up what it is. So, um, the oneness movement has no impact on me sharing the gospel. Um, so, and I can't answer to Philip Craig and Dean cause I don't know anything about their situation. So Michael Cato says, uh, can you explain the seven spirits in the book of revelation? It has always confused my understanding of the Trinity. Um, well, I would say that um, uh, it's in the letters to the churches, greetings from the seven spirits, which are before his throne. Um, some people just take this as being a sevenfold spirit. One thing that may help is the number seven is a number of completion. It's a it's a fullness number. Also, the, the I think it's the lamb has seven eyes. And so the seven spirits are seen as God's awareness of what is going on in all places. He's writing to seven churches. He has... Uh, he, he is in every one of those churches. And so seven spirits might not be that there's God has seven Holy Spirits. It may be just simply a reference to his omnipresence and his omniscience. Uh, that may be the case. Um, obviously, a careful verse by verse treatment would be better. But there's a couple thoughts off the top. Uh, Will Brown says, does Pastor Mike have any examples that he thinks is best to describe the unity and diversity of the Trinity that wouldn't lead to modalist uh, examples? Uh, Will, I don't have anything I think that is ironclad for analogies. I think there's nothing like God in all creation. Uh, creation teaches us about God. We learn about God from creation, but there's nothing to make an analogy of God. So my recommendation is avoid analogies, but I will in my, my hopes, not promises, but my hopes, I'll do a whole video going through a bunch of analogies for the Trinity and analyzing each of them biblically. But that'll be maybe one day kind of thing. So, uh, Mariano Rogers says, question for Mike, do you have any debates lined up for 2019? Hey, good question. I actually forgot. I was, I should have mentioned, I didn't even think about it. I have a particular debate coming up in 2019. Um, I'm going to be debating, uh, Matt Dillahunty, who is a very well-known atheist. And we're going to be debating on the topic of the resurrection of Christ. And that's coming in April. It should be hopefully the week of Easter. We don't have a solid date yet, but it should be the week of Easter, the week before Easter Sunday. And, um, 
I'm really looking forward to it. I appreciate your prayers and I plan on uh, digging deep uh, and preparing for that as, be as best as I can. Um, it's exciting to me to get to do it. It's tough for my second debate with an atheist, my second like real debate with an atheist, um, to be Matt Dillahunty. The guy's very skilled at rhetoric. I think he's uh, thin on data, but I think he's very skilled at rhetoric. So it's going to be a, 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 a rhetorical battle is what it's going to be. Uh, not in a mean way, but in, in a, you know, that's where a lot of the challenge is going to lie. Uh, but I'm excited because I believe we're presenting truth, presenting the truth of Jesus Christ and of, of his love and sacrifice for, for us that we might know God. Um, so it's exciting to get into it. So yeah, that's coming up. I have some other debate offers, actually I have several other debate offers, and I just can't say yes to all of them. So I'll hold my tongue on all that because I'm going to wait until it's all solid before I say something. But tomorrow I will be on the non sequitur show uh, representing the Christian faith and worldview talking with a, uh, like an, I think, Ocean, forgive me if I'm labeling you incorrectly. I think the right label would be neo-pagan, neo-paganism. Um, so he's a pagan, believes, he, his belief is in Thor. And I'll also be an atheist. The three of us will be discussing worldview issues. That'll be on the non sequitur show. And then afterwards we'll have an after show on modern day debate james james's channel a modern day debate which i recommend you guys check out his channel as well and um then the day after that i am doing an interview with sj thompson on youtube so i'm pretty busy I, I kind of agreed to do all these things like months ago and so now in december and then with sj like months ago and so i'm kind of like you know locked into doing them but i'm glad i'm doing them but uh a little busy so thanks for being with me you guys i'll i'll uh, i guess i'll i'll check out um it's it's been good Oh, also, I should mention last thing. Um, the Hebrew Roots Movement. I, I am, I'm still looking into it. I'm going to do a video on this movement. I just don't have enough data to do it yet. I need to learn the movement before I can do an assessment of it. If you have information, or perhaps you're a leader in the Hebrew Roots Movement, I would like to talk to you. So please uh, send me a message. If you go onto my YouTube channel and click on the About tab, you can get an email that you can send me an email. And just tell me that you're... You're a leader. You can help me get in contact with leaders of this Hebrew Roots Movement so I can understand the movement better so I don't misrepresent it when I address it thoughtfully in a future video uh, that will come at a time I refuse to promise because I always lie and break my promises unintentionally because <laughs> life gets busy. So thank you guys so much. Lord bless you. Um, don't, don't forget the intensity and power of what we just discussed. The identity of Christ. Who God is. When we see Jesus... We see God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Um, so powerful. So beautiful. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, have a great evening.